Thank you, Billy. Thanks, worship team, for, for reminding us that we have a living hope. That we don't gather to worship a far-off deity or a historical figure, but we worship a God who is alive and he is near and present here today. And I see a lot of familiar faces in the room, but also see some new faces. And I know there are those who are joining us electronically, uh, either online or listening in the car, or maybe even later this week in the, at work. And, but our prayer is the same for all of us today, that we will be able to hear from God, to experience his presence together, not just to be inspired, but to be changed, to be transformed, uh, to, be, to leave this time more like Jesus. And that's our hope and prayer for each of us today as we get into his word. And so because that's our goal, uh, the, the most powerful thing I could do would just be to get into it with you guys, to open his word with you. Uh, we are in John chapter 18, as Billy just read. We only have a few chapters left in the Gospel of John, Uh, so chapter 18 is the arrest of Jesus, Uh, chapter 19 is going to be the crucifixion, the burial, and then chapters 20 and 21 are the resurrection, and then the restoration of Peter, but it's going to take us to almost the end of November to get through those uh, few chapters, and so we're going to make it through the first 11 verses of chapter 18. Some context, uh, we have finished the, the moment in the upper room where uh, they break bread and they share the cup. And Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, we've, we've passed the point where Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Uh, chapter 13, as a matter of fact, where that happened. And then Judas leaves. And then uh, we have chapter 14, 15, 16, 17 is that beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. Uh, first for the glory of the Father, uh, and then second for us that we will be sanctified. And then he ends by praying for those who have yet to believe. And maybe some of you even here today who have yet to believe. And just know Jesus has already prayed for you, and we've been praying for you today as well. And so now we've made it to the moment where they leave the upper room, and it's go time. What's a, what has been predicted is about to happen. God's plan for the Son is about to unfold And so this is where we are now in the Gospel of John. We're going to pick this up in verses 1 and 2. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and the disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I think the first thing that that John wants us to understand about this moment, it was a moment of immense betrayal. We knew this moment was coming. Jesus has already talked about his betrayer being there, dipping the hand in the cup with him in the upper room. We know the Old Testament prophesies that one from among Jesus' close followers, the Messiah's followers, will actually sell him out or betray him for a few silver pieces. And so now the moment has has happened. It's interesting, just a side note, this, this Kidron Uh, valley that Jesus has crossed the brook to come to the garden it's actually a place where uh, King David was betrayed by a close friend in the Old Testament uh, back in 2nd Samuel 15 so there's definitely the idea of betrayal in the air and I think the fact that this is a familiar place it's not like Jesus is going out to a secret place and Judas just happens to find him there Jesus is going out to a familiar place, an intimate place that he went to with the 12, including Judas. And so this was not only familiar to the 12, it was an intimate place. And this is the place that Judas uh, betrays him. Now, I think this is also important to note, the fact that it's familiar means this, that this didn't happen on accident. It's not like Jesus got caught. 
or Jesus got found because he was in hiding. Now, what's happening here, and we're going to see this as the scripture unfold, is very providential. It's very much on purpose that this is the time that Jesus gets arrested. He goes to a familiar place, a place that Judas would know well. And so this is where we find Jesus and the disciples. Verse 3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Before we get into the details of verse 3, there's, a, there's a, a, an image that comes to mind that I want to share with you from a movie. And then I'm going to share with you how this moment is different from that moment. Some of you are already giggling because you know where I'm going. It's the movie Shrek. Now, it's been a while since that movie came out. But if you remember the movie Shrek, the animated movie, uh, the ogre who lives in the swamp. And there's a, there's a group of villagers who want to run the ogre out of the swamp. It's early on in the movie. And so they come at night with lanterns and with pitchforks, right, ready to run the ogre out of the swamp. And so they make it almost to where uh, Shrek is living, and they start talking about their plan and what they're going to do and what to be careful of, and they're starting to get a little nervous. And so if you remember the scene, Shrek just kind of walks up into their conversation, and then he begins to correct their strategy against him. And he does it in some sarcasm and starts to make fun of them. And they're just sitting there starting to get nervous. And they're it's like, whoa, this, this beast is way bigger than we thought. And there's one brave villager who has a, a torch. And he begins to wave it at Shrek. Get back. You get back. And Shrek just licks his fingers and puts out the torch. And they're all just frozen in fear. And then he lets out this roar. And they all fall down. And then he whispers, this is the part. Where you run? And they all ran and scattered out of there. Now, that's not exactly what's happening here. But that image comes to mind when I picture Jesus that night out in the garden, kind of a remote area uh, with the 11. And then Judas shows up, right, with torches and with weapons uh, to seize him and arrest him. Now, what's different about this moment, we're going to see as this unfolds. So we've got a group of people here. We've got Judas the betrayer. We, we, we know who he is. But, but who are these other characters? We've got these chief priests and Pharisees. So these are basically the legal team. Okay, They have been plotting to kill Jesus for a long time in the Gospel of John. Early on, even, they were beginning to hint of his arrest and trying to catch him, and they were trying to trip him up in public so there would be witnesses. And then we get to the resurrection of Lazarus, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And from that moment forward, uh, it was no longer we need to catch him uh, with witnesses so we can put, like, let's just put him to death. Matter of fact, one of the Pharisees says in that conversation, guys, it would be better to just go ahead and let's just put him to death. So they had already decided that at, at, the, at the first moment they have to catch Jesus' death sentence. And that's the plan for Jesus. So that's the Pharisees and the chief priests. Now they need to be there because from a legal perspective, they are the only ones who can convict him of the crimes that they're claiming he has committed. Now the band of soldiers... Um, unlike the scene in Shrek, was probably around 600 Roman soldiers. 
And they are there to carry out the authority of the Roman government in making sure that this criminal, this one who is claiming to be a king, is rightly seized and brought to trial and punished for his crimes against the emperor. And so this is the crowd that Judas has brought to Jesus in the garden. We'll pick this back up in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, did Jesus get caught off guard? Did Jesus get surprised? Was he caught in a trap? No. John goes to great lengths that you would see your Savior courageously stepping into this battle. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus <clears throat> said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've gave me, I have lost not one. So now the scene begins to unfold. We know from the other gospel accounts that Judas had given this, his, the captors a sign. He said, hey, the one who I get close to and I kiss on the cheek, that's the one. That's how you'll know which one is the right one. Why is that important? Well, if this were just like modern day warfare, the leader of the team doesn't want to be found out, right? You can give up a, a Peter or a John, right? You can give up one of the disciples and, and the movement goes on. But if the leader is killed, the movement dies. And so the Romans were well aware of this. So they knew there's a, if we just show up and say, who's Jesus? There's a chance that one of the other guys will go, oh, it was me, it was me, take me. And so Judas said, hey, just to prevent any of that from happening, the one who I get close to and kiss, he's the one. Now, in this account, John just says he came up and got close to him. Because I think the main thing for you and I to see is the depth of this betrayal. Judas didn't stand at a distance and point. He comes right up to Jesus as though they are good friends and betrays Jesus to his face. Now, what's interesting about this scene is, going back to Shrek and similarity, there is a response of fear, isn't there? Like, like, we're not just talking about a group of 20 guys with lanterns and pitchforks. We're talking about a cohort of probably 600 Roman soldiers, the legal team. They're all there. This one betrayer, Jesus just simply identifies himself, and what happens? They all fall back to the ground. So I think it worth noting what did jesus do to cause that he didn't roar like an ogre he didn't call down lightning and thunder he didn't walk on water he didn't cause a, a bush to catch on fire and not burn up so what did jesus do that caused his captors to fall back in fear it was quite simple he said to them i am he 
And what's really important about that response, it's hard to see in English, is actually what he says in the Greek language is, I am. There's no added pronoun of he, it's just I am. In the Gospel of John, as we know, there are several I am statements. This is how Jesus declares himself as the I am by this simple wording, I am. And it was just that identification as the great I am that caused his captors to fall back in fear. I was talking with a good friend this week about the names of God and called me on the phone and I was coming into work and he said, I've got some questions about the names of God. How do we know we're calling God the right name? And how do we know what the right name, how do we know what God wants to be called? And I said, that's a great question. It takes the whole Bible to answer that question because God identifies himself with different names. In, in, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there are certain names that come up. In the New Testament, there are certain names. Of course, we have Jesus and we were talking about, well, Joseph gave Jesus the name Jesus so how do we know that Jesus wants to be called Jesus and we talked through all that and then I realized he was in the truck behind me so I was like hey pull in so we pulled into the church parking lot and continued this conversation but we got to the part where I I explained to him how in Exodus uh, in in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush with Moses having this conversation God comes to Moses and essentially commissions him to go to Pharaoh to let God's people go and you remember the conversation, Moses is like, okay, now what do you want me, to, are you sure? Okay, okay, I have the instructions, but one more question. Who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? God could have responded with, you tell Pharaoh that Yahweh sent you. Jehovah sent you. A lot of names God could have used in that moment. But the name that God used in that moment for Moses to take to Pharaoh to display God's power over Pharaoh was what? am which actually probably better translates i be and so when you think about that specific name of of god it's a name that indicates all of those attributes qualities and characteristics about god that belong only to god how much knowledge do you have god says i am How long will you live, God? And God says what? I am. How how loving are you, God? Where's the end of your love? How much do we have to mess up to run out of grace? And God simply says what? I am. The idea that I always have been, and I am, and I always will be. Whatever I am today, I always have been, and I will always be. I be. And we begin to understand the significance and the power of that name as Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward, doesn't say with a loud voice, not with lightning bolts. He didn't transfigure glory. He just simply stood for, stepped forward towards his captors and said, I am. Boom. They fell back in fear. What are the attributes that belong to God and God alone? Independence. There's a hijacked concept in the American culture, isn't it? God and God alone is independent and needs nothing from no one. All the rest of us, we're pretty dependent beings. Infinite, always has been, always will be. 
immeasurable, eternal, incomprehensible, preeminent, sovereign, transcendent, holy, set apart, no one like him, majestic, omnipresent, present, which means everywhere all the time, omniscient, which means all-knowing, there's nothing he doesn't know, omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, so when you see God display his power, you never see the fullest extent of it because there isn't a fullest extent of God's power and unchanging. All of that is meant when God says, call me, I am. And here in this garden, in this moment of betrayal, Jesus steps forward and declares to his captors, I am. Now, with Jesus doing this before he turns himself over, I want you to think of it that way. Before he turns himself over, it means several things for us. It means obviously that he didn't get caught or backed into a corner. Uh, It also means that he was following this perfectly script story that his father had written for him. And also means this, that Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down by his own power. Back in John chapter 10, he said this in verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. The disciples, they remember him saying that. Now they're at the moment where he's about to get arrested. He says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So this is what I'm picturing. It's almost as if before Jesus is arrested, he fully displays his power His captors respond, so you and I know, and so they know, that nobody caught Jesus. And then he simply steps forward and said, here, let me let you arrest me. And puts the cuffs on himself so that they can take him away. That's what we're seeing here. This is the unfolding plan of the Father for his Son on your behalf. Then he says something else here. He says, this is all to fulfill the words that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. I think this phrase and this prophecy being fulfilled here has a lot of significance. And I I don't know that we're going to fully unpack it here. Um, But it's the idea of God's position in battle versus our position in battle. That's the starting point where I want to start today. And then we'll, we'll get to what this means for the 11 and what it means for us. But we, we talked about this theme in battle um, a couple Friday nights ago at our fall kickoff. We started our service this way, looking at 2 Chronicles 20. Um, this, this scene from the Old Testament where the nation of Israel is about to go into battle and they're beginning to, to receive word that what they're about to face is just going to be too overwhelming King Jehoshaphat, he just, he falls on his face and and cries out to the Lord, we're not going to win this battle, please help us God. You guys remember we talked through that. There's just a couple of phrases from God's response to Jehoshaphat. I want you to see this pattern uh, in the scripture of God's position in battle versus ours. Uh, So from 2 Chronicles 20 in verse 15, we read that God's response is, "For, for the battle is not yours, but it's God. It doesn't belong to you. He's speaking to his people. 
So God's saying, whatever battle we face together, doesn't belong to you, battles to me, verse 17, it belongs to me. You will not need to fight in this battle. Okay, guys, so then what do I do if I'm an Israelite about to go into battle, and God says, you're not going to have to fight in this battle, so what am I to do? God says here, stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. So the, the position for God's people is to what? To stand. Stand firm, hold your position, and just see what happens. Right, so I wonder, does that happen anywhere else in the scriptures? I go to uh, the book of Exodus. This is in Exodus 14. Uh, Moses has already led the people out of captivity, and now they're headed towards the Red Sea. The Egyptians are on their tail. Again, crying out to God, what are we going to do? Verse 13 says, And Moses said to the people, listen for the pattern here, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Why does it sound familiar? Because it's coming from the same source, God. He's speaking to Moses on behalf of the nation of Israel, the same way he spoke to, to King Jehoshaphat on behalf of Judah. He says, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be what? Silent. What's my job? God in battle. Okay, I want you to stand firm. I want you to see the salvation of the Lord. And oh, by the way, just go ahead and keep your mouth closed if you would. Just watch what I am about to do. John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about this moment. This is where he prophesies that he will not lose one. And here's what he says in context, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. And in this particular context, Jesus is telling his followers, all you need to do is look and believe. The battle is mine. I'm not going to lose any of you. Okay, well, what's our part? What do we need to do? Do we need to arm ourselves? Do we need to be ready for battle? Jesus says, no, 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 no. All you need to do is stand firm. Hold your position. Matter of fact, just, it's better. Matter of fact, Peter, if you just keep your mouth shut, remain silent, and see the salvation of the Lord and believe thinking about even like Ephesians 6, this, this call to spiritual battle by the Apostle Paul, how many times he says, stand, stand firm. And then he tells us to gear up with, for battle with all these weapons, and you begin to go, wait a second, these are all spiritual truths. They aren't actually weapons. Paul's like, yeah, why? Because your battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle, one you can't fight. Now, why am I pointing all this out in this particular point in John chapter 18, because Jesus is stepping forward into battle. Make no mistake. He is stepping forward to face your greatest enemy. And it's not Judas the betrayer. It's not the legal team that's gathered there to convict him. It's not the cohort of Roman soldiers. The greatest enemy that Jesus is about to face is death itself. And so as you see your Savior, no anxiety at this moment, he steps forward calmly in submission to his Father's will 
arrest me. Why? Because he's going into battle for you. And his call to you is stand firm and watch what I'm about to do. And Jesus says, let these men go. Now, if the story had ended here, we would potentially in our minds imagine this peaceful scene where Jesus has been handcuffed and bound. He maybe says a few closing words to the 11, and then he's carried away in silence. Just a kind of a peaceful, solemn scene. But that's a scene without Peter. <laughs> that's before Peter gets involved and tries to take things into his own hands. And so let's pick this up. We'll read verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Now, I think this is an interesting place to, to stop today, especially in light of the idea that Jesus said, hey, I'm not going to lose any of you. And now Peter just did something that would warrant immediate sentencing of death. He just struck somebody with a sword. In this context, like that's, if you strike, for example, a soldier of the emperor, it's the same as striking the emperor, and it's a death sentence. Like what Peter just did took a situation that, that Jesus was in complete control of, unfolding according to the Father's will. He inserted himself and tried to take control. And now if Jesus doesn't do something, Peter's about to die too. Now, there's two issues with Peter getting arrested with Jesus and taken to be crucified. One, the idea that Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any. That's important, right? I mean, if Jesus made that claim, and then he reiterates it right here, and then he loses one. Can we trust anything Jesus says? But there's a second reason I think is more important, more significant, is that Jesus is not simply just going to pay a punishment for a crime that, that you and I committed. That's part of it. But he's offering himself up as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, and Jesus is the only one qualified to make that sacrifice. Like, we don't need Peter on the cross. It doesn't help us. It doesn't do anything to forgive our sins and to, to sanctify us and to, and to secure us for eternal life. Like, it does us no good for Peter to die here. And so then that helps us understand, I think, more clearly Jesus' response when he heals the ear of the servant. But where I want to land today is on this last statement when he says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus is restating to Peter and everybody there, this is the Father's will. My arrest, the suffering that I'm going to endure, the death... The barrel, it's all part of this cup of sacrifice that I am to drink. Now, that cup is mentioned in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in the other gospel accounts, it's embedded in a prayer. 
Father, if it's possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. And then he follows it up with what? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So this cup representing this idea of the cup of suffering. What's interesting, I think, is to notice that just hours previous to this, Jesus was in the upper room sharing the Passover meal with these guys, his disciples, and Judas was there. And I don't know if you know anything about the Passover meal. It's a little different from um, communion. It's similar to communion. It's like a summarized version of the full meal. But in the meal, there are actually four cups uh, that they would share. And these four cups represented the four promises that God made to Moses back in Exodus. Remember, God comes to Moses, burning bush, go let my people go. All right, God, I'll do it. But who do I say sent me? I am sent me. And then after that, God gives this promise to, to Moses, this fourfold promise. So fast forward, when God's people are let go and they say, oh my gosh, I don't want to forget this amazing rescue of God for us. Let's celebrate this with a Passover meal. They include four cups in the Passover meal to represent the promises from Exodus 6. Here, here they are. Verse, this is Exodus 6, verse 6. God tells Moses, say therefore to the people, I am the Lord. And here's his first promise. And I will bring you out from under the burdens. So as they celebrated the Passover meal, they would, they would drink that first cup in the meal and they would remind themselves of the promise of a God who, who leads his people out from underneath burdens. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Then he continue, the promise continues of the Egyptians. And here's the second cup. I will deliver you from slavery. It's the second promise. They would drink this second cup and remind themselves of the promise of God to rescue his people from slavery, which is interesting. Jason Martin read from Romans chapter 6. You know what Romans chapter 6 is about primarily in, in context? It's about our slavery. And we're either going to be slaves to sin or slaves to God. And this third cup, imagine Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. They're sharing the Passover meal, and he's passing this cup, right? The freedom from burden. He's passing the cup, this rescue from slavery. And then he gets to the third cup where God says to Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so even though the disciples in that upper room, they didn't really know everything that Jesus was about to face they, they started uh, this, this kind of journey. Jesus started this journey to the cross with this reminder that God saves his people with an outstretched arm. And then I love the fourth cup, the fourth promise. This is in Exodus 6, verse 7. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And so every year when the Jews would celebrate this Passover meal, they would drink these four cups all throughout the meal and remind themselves of these four promises. Jesus had just celebrated the Passover meal with these guys before he walked out into the garden. And so when he makes this statement about this cup that he is to drink, I think he has all of this in mind. I'm about to drink this cup of suffering. I'm about to drink this cup of redemption, this cup that represents your adoption, this cup that will set you free. Peter, put up your sword. I've got a cup to drink. 
And it's my cup and my cup alone and not yours. And so the idea of Jesus saying, I will lose lose not one, it's important that he keeps that promise, but it's more significant than that. Jesus is saying to Peter, to the disciples, to you and to me, there is only one who is worthy to drink this cup. Peter, don't you dare try to drink this cup. That's my cup. Now, I wonder if this is how you and I react when we face hard situations in life. One of the things that we will say sometimes, whether we mean it or not, once we've gotten to the place in a hard situation where we don't know what to do is this. We'll say, well, all I know to do now is pray. All I know to do now is stand firm, hold my position, and see what God's going to do. Now, rewind to the moment of turmoil, the moment of hardship when we first face it. What is our first reaction? It's often to be Peter. We reach for anything we can find, any tool at our disposal to try to fix the situation. How many of us try to be our own saviors? And like Peter, the last resort is, okay, now I've tried all I can do, God. Now you take over. Let's see if you can do anything with this. And God says, oh, man. All you are to do is stand firm, hold your position, see my salvation. Watch what I can do. This is why the battle doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. I want to end here and just give you a couple of things to think about. And we'll pick this back up next week in verse 12. I'm just going to reiterate that last question I just asked. So when you face hard situations in your life, do you tend to respond like Peter? Try to take things into your own hands until Jesus stops you? Or... Have you gotten to that place where you've done that enough times to know that that's just not going to work? It's where now when you hit that hard thing, your first step is backwards. Let me just take a step back and pray and see what the Lord can do. I think another question we could ask ourselves out of today's message is this. I think about, you know, Peter steps forward, cuts the ear. He, he needs to be arrested and taken to killed. Jesus heals the ear right, this act of grace, that's not just for Malchus, I think that's for Peter. Like, how many times has Jesus stepped in and healed something that you've broken? That I've broken. I think there's a lot of emphasis in the church. We talk a lot about what other people have done to us, and rightly so. When people hurt us, it's, it wounds us. It hurts. We don't know what to do with that pain, but do we also take inventory on the times that we have hurt people and how many times Jesus has stepped in as an act of grace towards you and the person you're hurting and saying, hey, let me heal both of you. I was thinking about that this week as I was reading this story. And then finally, and this is always an important question to ask ourselves, how does the truth of what we've heard today how does it impact my Monday? How's it going to impact my Wednesday? 
how's it going to impact this really hard situation that I've been sitting here thinking about since I sat down today? How is this going to help the turmoil I've got going on at home or at work? How's this going to help me when I walk into my doctor's office this Wednesday to get the report? How does the truth of knowing that Jesus went to the cross in his own power, laid his life down with his own power, took it back up again with his own power on your behalf. How does that impact your everyday life? I just want you to think about that as we wrap up here today. Before we call the band back up, I just want to take a moment just to say, if you're watching, listening online, if you're here today, God's speaking to you, like, God isn't like a radio station. You just turn him on and listen to his voice to make you feel better, and then you turn it off when you're done. When God speaks, we are to listen and respond. And so maybe you're here today, and you're realizing, you know what? I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. Like, I, I don't even know how to become a Christian. Like, if that's what you're thinking right now, I'm, I'm really happy for you. And my hope for you is that you would not leave here today without getting that question answered. That's why we provide prayer partners at the end of every service and, and elders out in the commons. Like, that's what we want for you. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you are a Christian, but you've been convicted deeply today about the way that you respond to hardship and situations and trying to solve your own problems and take matters into your own hands. And so maybe for you today, it's a day just to take a step back. Maybe there's a big situation you brought in and you already have the plan on how you're going to solve it and you don't even know yet if it's not going to work. But instead of waiting until you realize it doesn't work, maybe today you would just choose. I'm just going to lay this down. I'm laying it down. I can't fix this person. I can't fix this situation. I can't heal. So I'm going to lay it at the feet of the one who can. My hope will be that you would do that today before you leave. So I'm going to pray for us now and invite our worship team out, prayer partners forward. If you're, if you're, if you're a regular attendee, you know this can become a routine. Let it not be a routine today. Respond to what God is speaking to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word. God, without it, we would be wandering around in darkness with no direction, no hope, really no idea of what truth is. So thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you speak through it. God, as we read it, as we dig into it, Father, your spirit speaks to each one of us. And so thank you for speaking this morning. Father, our prayer, what we're asking of you now is that you would give us the faith and the courage to respond. Father, maybe somebody is sitting here today with this, this huge burden of just, of sin. And they have yet to bring that to you, to, to repent of that sin and to receive the grace and mercy that only you can provide. May it be so today. Father, maybe there's somebody here today who <laughs> still thinks of you as a far-off deity or a historic figure, and, and today would be the day that they would come to know you personally, God, to take that step of faith and to believe in Jesus. God, may it be so today. God, for all of us to take note of what it means to be your people. Father, a people who are eternally dependent upon you, perpetually in need of you. 
For some of us today, we just need to repent of our arrogance, our self-righteousness. We need to lay our needs before you and say, God, I can't fix it. I can't heal this. I can't change this. God, I'm laying it at your feet. God, may it be so. We pray all this in Jesus' name.